Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon from Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. You may not have known it, but we've been praying for you to be here. We've been praying for families with young kids. Pendulum swings, there's high tide, there's low tide. We've got a lot of little kids, and then you've got a lot of teenagers. And then you don't have any kids. And then you've got a lot of little kids again. There's an ebb and flow to the life in a congregation. We're grateful for you to be here with your kids. According to John 19, verse 30, these were Jesus' last words from the cross. Tetelestai. It's finished. It's what a servant says to his master when he's completed his assigned task. Tetelestai. I'm finished. It's what an artist would say when he lays down the brush for the last time and washes it out, washes it out and puts it away. Tetelestai. I'm finished. It's what a merchant says when an invoice or, or receipt was stamped, paid in full, tetelestai, there is no more debt, it is finished. And it's what a priest would say when they would bring their sacrificial lamb and he would examine it to see whether or not it was without flaw because it needed to be tetelestai, complete, perfect, not lacking anything. It was finished. Jesus finished his father's promise to send a savior, a Messiah. And that's why Jesus would say, or it would say about Jesus in John 19, verses 28 through 30, that it was when Jesus realized that everything had now been finished that he said, I'm thirsty. He did this to fulfill scripture. A jar of sour wine was standing there, so they soaked a sponge in it. They put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And after Jesus had taken the wine, he said, Tetelestai, it's finished. There's nothing left to do. It's complete. He bowed his head and released his spirit. Now, one example of how Jesus fulfilled prophecy, or excuse me, this is one example of how Jesus fulfilled the prophecy about how God's Messiah would be treated. And it was found in Psalm 29, verse 21, when it says, they put gall in my food and they gave me vinegar, not wine. Most who study and count these things because of OCD, I guess, would conclude there's at least 300 Old Testament prophecies about how, the, about how Jesus was able to finish what was foretold about the coming Messiah. 300 different prophecies about one man. Now, here's, here's a little exercise for you. You won't be embarrassed, I promise. Imagine 
If I, I'm not going to, so relax. If I were to ask each one of you to guess, to say, to put money down, that the next person who walked through that door was going to, and then fill in the blank, what they look like, what would happen to them, what would you say about the next person to walk through that door? Hmm. And there were, each of you got to guess once. Each of you got to guess once. And, and you in the middle, you get twice. That'd be more or less about 300. But, but here's the interesting thing, to me at least. See real, real quick here. Um, okay, let's 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 do this right here, if you don't mind. Okay, I need the three of you, and the two of you, and the two of you, to just stand up for like five seconds. That's all. Just stand where you are for five seconds. Three, five, seven. Oh, and would you stand up to eight? Okay. See how many this is? That's eight. Okay. Good. You're done. Thanks. The biggest part of that was me trying to count to eight. <laughs> Peter Stoner was the chairman of a mathematics department at a university. He wrote Science Speaks, and he illustrates the statistical improbability of only eight, not 300, but only eight of you being able to accurately say what the next person to walk through that door was going to look like or what would happen to them. And he says that the probability of all eight of you being able to guess that is one in 10 to the 17th. Now, I haven't been in a math class for a long time. I just know that's a lot of zeros. But what's a number with that many zeros look like? I have driven through Texas. You can drive all day and never get out of Texas. If you were to cover the state of Texas with silver dollars and mark one of them and you covered it two feet deep and then waited for a tornado and then blindfold Mike here and tell him you got a week find that one silver dollar go as far as a week is you can go in a week that's the same probability of just eight telling you what would happen to the next person that walked in that door. And that just happened today. Imagine if it would take years, decades, a century or two. That, first of all, the door would still be there. And somebody would walk through it, and what would happen to them, or what they would say. Good luck finding that silver dollar, Mike. That's the same probability that that would happen.
Now, when Je with Jesus' death, he finished his father's requirements for a blood sacrifice for forgiveness of sin. And when that sacrifice for sin was completed, finished once, for, once and for all, he says that those sacrifices were tetelestai. You see, God had required the Jewish people to practice a system of sacrifices of various, various animals and various objects in order to maintain a right relationship with him. In Hebrews 9, verse 22, this will sound familiar to you. According to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Now, here, here's the idea behind this. What, what's blood got to do with this? Okay, think pinky square to 10 to the 17th. Okay, here, here's why. A blood sacrifice was made when a contract or a covenant between two people was made. And the idea behind this blood sacrifice was just this. If I don't hold up my end of the bargain, if I don't keep my word, may my blood be spilled by you. In other words, God help me, so help me God, May God strike me dead. All those phrases that we use to try to convince somebody how serious we are, that's the idea behind the sprinkling of the blood on individuals who entered into a covenant contract with each other. That's why he says, God promised. Once a year, a family was required to bring a sacrificial lamb to the temple for their sin offering. That's why John the Baptist said what he did about Jesus at the beginning of his ministry when he looked up in John 1, 29 and said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He recognized that Jesus was that final sacrificial lamb. And Jesus knew these sacrifices for sin that they had been making up to that point in time were inadequate. I feel like... Check back in with me, okay? If you took a little minute mental vacation there, come back from Orlando and, you know, be here with me for this. All the things that you've been doing to try to feel like you were right with God are inadequate. Whatever promises you made to God were a waste of time. Whatever commitments you made, whatever you did to try to make up for what you'd done wrong are the same as those sacrifices that they had been offering. Here, here's how he describes that in verse 8 of Hebrews 10. Christ said of God, you didn't want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burn offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them even though they were, were required by the law of Moses. You see, everything that we promise God, everything that we tell God, everything we try to do to make it up to God, everything we do to hope that we'll balance out the scales of justice when we stand before the judgment throne, 
and maybe have a chance to get in in our mind? God's not, God, God doesn't want that. The Old Testament sacrificial system was based on these three principles, cho choice, cost, and change. You may have heard me talk about that before. First of all, the, the sacrifice had to be a, a matter of their choice. It wasn't like a tax that was taken from you. It was your voluntary desire to offer it. The second principle, and I'll go through these quickly, was that it had to have cost or value. It had to mean something to you. That's why the prophets would kind of get on God's people when you know, they, would, they would realize, well, it's time to offer an animal sacrifice to God. We got anything that's about to die? Got anything with a broken leg? Got anything that's sick? Let's take that instead. It's going to die anyway. Might as well let it die to God. Now, it didn't cost anything, and God was insulted by that because they tried to offer something that cost them nothing. And the third principle of sacrifice was this, that it was supposed to make a change, a change in a relationship, a change in us. It was supposed to make a difference in the one who was going to, to bring it to offer to God. Now, when any of these three principles of sacrifice, choice, cost, or change, were violated, and they frequently were, nothing happened because nothing was changed. But by contrast, when Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, it met all three of those criteria. It was his choice. Nobody forced him. Nobody took his life from him. He voluntarily gave it. Choice. Did it cost him anything? Yeah, it cost his life. It cost his blood. Did it change anything? Absolutely. It changed our relationship with God forever. That's why in verse 10 of Hebrews 10, it says, we have been made holy. Now, I don't want to get lost in an English class here, but notice the tense of that. It has already happened in the past. We have been made holy. And the tense of it indicates not only did it happen in the past, but it's continuing to happen right now and will continue to happen in the future. We have been made holy. We have been made purified from sin because Jesus Christ did what God wanted him to do by sacrificing his body once for all. Tetelestai. It's finished. Now, Matthew tells us that at the time of Jesus' death, the curtain in the temple separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple area was torn apart from top down versus bottom up by some klutz getting his feet tangled up in the bottom of the curtain. And Did I do that? The space behind the curtain was considered to be the place where God's presence was in the temple. And once a year, well, you know how that is. If you're a school teacher and a kid in your class sees you out of class, like on a weekend, they're just kind of amazed because they think you live at school, right? Well, the same type of thing happened here. They thought God lived in the temple. You know, it's like, God, what are you doing here? They, and so once a year, the high priest would enter into that holy of holies behind the, tent, be, behind the curtain, and he would stand in the presence of God. 
Now, before going in, it was such an intimidating thing. Before he would go, this sounds almost like a joke. It's not, I promise. It's, it was their routine. They were so in awe of being in the presence of God and so afraid of standing in the presence of God that they would tie a rope onto the ankle of the high priest before he went in so they could drag him out if something went bad and God considered him unacceptable and struck him dead. So he would go in dragging a rope behind him on his ankle and he would take a blood sacrifice with him to atone both for his own sin as well as the sin of his people. And so when Hebrews 10 says that we have been made holy, purified from sin because he sacrificed his body once for all it's over like a game-winning shot in the final four at the last second and time runs out or the walk-off home run on opening day every Sunday we celebrate Jesus game-winning shot the victory over Satan because Jesus finished it God sees us as holy and he sees us as purified from our sin and pronounces us tetelestai. It's finished. So here's the point. Following the steps of Jesus will teach us to finish our Father's work as well. You remember the story in, in John 4, it talks about Jesus having a conversation with a woman at the well. It was in Samaria. Jesus and the disciples had been on the road that morning. About noon, they arrive at this well. He sends them on into town to get something for them to eat while he sits down to rest by the well. While he's there, a woman comes to the well to draw water, and he asks her for a drink. Now, she's kind of confused by his request because it breaks a whole lot of social norms for their culture of what was acceptable. And then she really gets rattled by Jesus because as their conversation goes on, it becomes clear that he knows things about her that he ought not to know. He ought not to have any reason to know. Like this, she know, he knows she's not married. Now, she had been five times. How would he have known that? He knows she's currently living with a man that she's not married to. How would he know that? This is before Google listens to you. She runs back into town, tells everybody there, I just met a man who knows everything that I've ever done. And the people that hear her say that probably kind of have to chuckle because they know that's a lot. The disciples return, and they're surprised to find out that he's been talking to a Samaritan woman, and they encourage him to eat something. But his response is this in verse 34 of John 4. He tells them after this conversation, my food is doing the will of the one who sent me. I must finish the work that he gave me to do. Yeah, you've guessed it. The word he uses there is tetelestai. 
From the very beginning, Jesus was focused on the importance of finishing what God sent him to do. Whether it was in a conversation with a woman in Samaria that everybody knew he didn't have any business talking with, or while it was suspended on a cross, and there's only one thing left on his mind, tetelestai. Because Jesus finished what he started, God's demand for justice, for our arrogance, for our apathy, and for our rebellion against him, even that is tetelestai. Now, although it can be hard for us to comprehend it at times, God is both love and grace, like you know, Nate was talking about during our communion meditation. And God is both love and justice, or grace and justice, simultaneously. Because of our apathy, because of our rebellion, justice demands that we are held accountable, that we're punished, and that atonement is made for that sin. And yet God has offered His only Son to die in our place to meet the demands of justice. God's demand for justice was fully satisfied in Jesus and his sacrificial death when there was nothing left to do. It's just like the words of that old familiar hymn. Read it with me. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And if you grew up with that, you remember how that chorus sounds. Sing it with me. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The only debt we owe to God because of what Jesus did is our gratitude. That's why Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth and he encouraged them to walk by faith, not by sight, while we're in this temporary home. And he urges them to remember that our life's goal is to please him. And the incentive, the motivation that we have for that is that one day when our life on earth is tetelestai, we'll stand before him in judgment. And that's when he says in chapter 5, verse 14 of 2 Corinthians, Christ's love compels us. Since we believe that Christ has died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. There's the change from the choice that he made that cost him his life. In verse 15, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Again, there's the cost, there's the choice, and there's the change. That we should no longer live for themselves, that they should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Because Jesus finished what he started, God's curse on sin is also tetelestai. Until Jesus came, there wasn't anybody who ever lived a perfect life. 
Everyone has sinned. Everyone's messed up. Everyone stood guilty and condemned before God. And Satan knew that. Satan knows what he tempts us with. He knows what he's successful at enticing us to do. And one day, we'll stand in the presence of God, and you can count on Satan being there as well, because the Scripture describes him as the accuser of our brethren. And when that book of life is opened, he'll be the one to stand there and accuse us, and what he says will be exactly right. And in my worst nightmare... Jesus, our mediator, will turn to God, the eternal judge, and say, He's right, Father. Ed did exactly those things that he's accused him of. That's exactly what his heart was really like. That's exactly what he thought when he didn't say anything. That's exactly what he didn't think and said, any, said something those are exactly the tears that he caused and the heart that he broke. But in the next moment, like watching that game-winning shot, we'll see Jesus turn the page and read from Hebrews 10.10, but he's been made holy. He's been purified from sin because I did what you wanted me to do, Father, when I sacrificed my body once for all. It is tetelestai, case closed. And even though we're not perfect, just like Barnabas, we're set free. So when you follow the steps of Jesus, you'll want to finish what he started. That's why Paul would write to Timothy these words. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 2. He says, preach the word. Be ready to serve God in good times and bad. Correct warn and encourage people with words of hope and be patient with them while you do these things teach them carefully for the time will come when people will not put up with truth instead they will only listen to teachers who say what they want to hear. And they'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths that aren't true at all. But I want you to keep your head no matter what happens. Don't give up when times are hard. Work to spread the good news. Fulfill the ministry that God has given you to do. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. For the time of my departure is near. I have fought a good fight. I have tetelestai. I have finished the race. I have kept.
kept the faith. And now there's a crown waiting for me, given to those who are right with God. The Lord who judges fairly will give it to me on the day when he returns, and he'll not only give it to me, he'll also give it to those who loved him and long for his return. When you follow the steps of Jesus, you finish what he started. David, want you in the praise team join me up on stage. Later, John would write to different churches. And repeatedly in chapter 2, he would say over and over and over again this very thought. If you're going to follow the steps of Jesus, you're going to want to finish what he started. And here's how he would phrase it. In verse 4, he reminds some people that they've left their first love, and he encourages them in verse 5 to remember what they used to do and to repent of what they're doing now instead so that they can repeat what they did at first. In verse 7, to the one who overcomes, I'll grant the tree of life in the paradise of God. You're going to hear him use that phrase about overcoming frequently to each one of the letters, to each one of the churches. That's the recurring theme. Overcome, overcome, finish what you start. In verse 10, he says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Be faithful to death and I'll give you the crown of life. To the church at Pergamum, he says this, overcome. To the church in Thyatira, he says, overcome. To the church in, in Sardis, he says, you've got to overcome. To the church in Philadelphia, overcome. And finally, to the church in Laodicea that had just become lazy and lukewarm, he says, you've got to overcome. You've got to finish what he started. If you're going to follow the steps of Jesus, the question is, are you willing to finish the work of God in your life? Are you willing to let him finish what he's trying to do in you? To step out of the shadows and to, like Joseph of Arimathea, personally give Jesus the respect that he deserves when he chose to sacrifice his own tomb at great cost. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. Our address is 17,000 Waldorf Road, Marysville, Ohio, 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at marysvillechristian.org.